welcome to today's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. If you'll indulge my Grandpa Simpson waxing poetic about the past just for a second. When I was first getting into fish, there were some shows, mostly from the early 90s, that lived in legend. There were stories about them, but it wasn't so easy to find internet posts, reviews, or just first-person narratives about them. One of those shows was June 21st, 1994 at the Cincinnati Music Hall. Fish began the show as usual when, about a half hour into the first set, the venue's fire alarm went off, forcing everyone to clear out. The show resumed with a second set that lasted an hour and 40 minutes. Luckily, social media has advanced to the point where we can instantaneously get in touch with other fans and hear about their experience at shows like this one. That's basically the premise of today's podcast, and so I was absolutely thrilled when today's guest, Kev Hollow of Charleston, South Carolina, got in touch and wanted to tell about his experience at that exact show. Kev is a longtime fish fan, a musician, and happy to discuss all things fish, which we do over the course of today's episode. While the 1994 Cincinnati show is the basis of today's episode, by no means do we stop there. The conversation ranges from music theory to ghost stories to the past, present, and future of the band. So let's join Kev Hollow to chat about it all as we revisit June 21st, 1994 at the Cincinnati Music Hall in Cincinnati, Ohio. Kev, welcome to Attendance Bias. How are you? Great, Brian. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I'm very excited for the show that you picked today and to have this discussion and learn more about the city, the venue, and the specific show that you chose, which is June 21st, 1994 at the Cincinnati Music Hall in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, As we talked a little bit before we started recording, I've heard a lot about this concert and another guest even mentioned it in a previous conversation, but I never got the opportunity to listen to it until you brought it up. So thank you for choosing not only a show, but even a whole tour that hasn't been brought up very frequently on this podcast. Absolutely. And I, I was thinking about that as you you were listening with fresh ears. And, and this is a show that I, I not only attended, but had the tape shortly after. So I've, I listened to this regularly. So maybe every couple of months I revisit it. So I was trying to imagine myself hearing it for the first time and how, how much fun that probably was for you. It really was. I love anything from 1994. So that it's always a lot of fun to hear a new a new show to me from that year. And especially this tour, which to me, I don't know if I know as much about it as I say, maybe the fall 94 tour or the New Year's run that year, which gets a lot of play, maybe mm-hmm. less so over the summer. But that's all we can get into. We can get into a lot more and we will. But let's start off, Kev, with the attendance bias lightning round. Attendance bias lightning round. So when was your first fish show and what do you remember from it? Uh, so this uh, show that we're discussing was my second. Uh, I had seen them one, once before in the summer of 1993, which uh, is a, a fabled tour, uh, a pretty historic moment for them uh, in terms of the playing and the performances. Uh, that show was remarkable for a lot of reasons for me. You know, Not only it was my first and my sort of uh, entree into that world, uh, but it was at the Cincinnati Zoo, which I love that you could leave the, it was the Peacock Pavilion, I think they called it, 
which is no more. Uh, it's, it's since been decommissioned. But you, at the time, it was just an open field with a stage at one end. And you could leave at set break and go walk amongst the animal exhibits. So that was pretty cool. I remember that distinctly. But the uh, return of slave to the traffic light uh, occurred. It was it was sort of long shelved, and then see the city, see the zoo became uh, sort of the the pinnacle or the the perfect moment to bring that back. So, uh, very overwhelming experience for a young teenager like myself. But it was pretty cool. And I have to imagine you're from or grew up around Cincinnati, right? Yes. Yep. And you know, it's so I, I loved that scene when I discovered it almost immediately because I was just telling a friend uh, before we, we started this recording that, you know, fish in the early nineties was very, very, I'll just say diverse, very unique uh, in terms of crowd and, and audience and draw. And I, I'll, I'll never forget sort of seeing this kind of wide variety of concert goer at that 93 show, you had metalheads, you had punk rockers and leather, you had, you know, what looked like math majors, you had, you know, these really kind of nerdy looking people. Uh, but also you had the hippies coming over from the Grateful Dead scene. So you had this like really wide, interesting mix uh, of people. And my parents were hip to the Grateful Dead, right? As square as they were, they knew when I asked to t tag along with my brother, my older brother who turned me on to, to this music. Uh, shout out to Brad for bringing home picture of Vector in, in 1992, they said, no, you can't go see the Grateful Dead in, in Richfield with, with your brother. They knew better. When I said, hey, I want to go see this band Fish at the zoo, they thought, sure, have fun. You know, <laughs> uh, there was no, they were so under the radar at the time that uh, there was no sense of, of, of danger. And that is what I want to talk about most with this show, because it was fraught with danger. It felt very uh, you you were treading into uncharted territory with this band, and uh, and I, I I was personally. I can wait to hear more about that because yeah. to me this this show listening through it, I understand what you mean at one point about the danger, which we'll get into uh, at the end of the what I guess we could call an abbreviated first set. Uh, but other than that, it sounded like a very clean '94 show, but. That's to be discussed. Uh, before yeah. we get to 94, let's fast forward a little bit. What was the most recent show that you've seen? The most recent fish show that you've seen? And what did you think of it? Uh, so that would have been in North Charleston. Uh, well, Charleston, South Carolina here in my, my, my hometown where I live now. And this was a year ago, uh, I think. Um, the date escapes me. But yeah, you know, it was a two-night stand at, at the Credit One Stadium. I was begrudgingly dragged along I, I i we can i know that one of the other questions is like what's your your hot take or your uh contentious opinion but you know i i i'm not the biggest fan uh, these days of of where they're at and i think it's just it's hard to be a fan uh sometimes when you've you've been around for as long as i have uh they did play foam they did play divided sky some of my old favorites with you know the thorny naughty compositional stuff and and that was a lot of fun well, I had another question coming up, but let's skip that one for now. We'll come back to it. What is that controversial, contentious fish opinion that you hinted at? Well, the the hottest one would be, you know, that it's time to hang it up. But I won't I won't say that because I, I know they bring a lot of joy to a lot of people. And, and that's important. I'm also in recovery uh, as an alcoholic and an addict. And, and that means a lot to me to see Trey do what he does in the recovery community. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And he's an amazing human being. 
I think just, you know, for Mike to, well, I think I said earlier when I was thinking about this to a friend, no more pedals, take everyone's pedals away. And Mike, to go back to the, the Languedoc bass, I just think tonally, and, and we can talk about tone a lot with this show we're, we're examining, but what I hear when I see fish today is, is a soup and it's a pedal soup and it's everybody with effects going haywire, uh, Paige, Trey, Mike, everybody. And I, I can't really hear much uh, other than just noise and, and not in a good way because I like avant-garde noise. Um, so yeah, no more pedals, no more toys, boys. <laughs> Does that mean that you mentioned Mike, Trey, and Paige? Does that mean that Fishman gets to keep all of his toys? Yes. Yes. I, I loved uh, when they used to say, we never let Fishman talk, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he talks so he much in practice, right? Yeah, so that's right. Talk that's on right. Stage. Yeah, no, Fishman is is still the rock. Uh, I think, you know, of all the, the guys, he's still the one to me that that uh, is is playing at a level that seems to to rival where he used to be. So drifting away from fish a little bit, but still part of the lightning round. One question I had was skyline chili. How many ways? I wrote two ways or three ways. And your answer was five ways. It's so, a five way, baby. Uh, yeah. So what for people listening who may have never been to Cincinnati or at least in that area of Appalachia, what is skyline chili? And do you endorse it? I absolutely endorsed Uh Born in and and raised well, was born in Cleveland, but raised in Cincinnati. And as a Cincinnati boy, uh, the the Cincinnati style chili we call it is in my heart, in my blood. I love it. Uh, for those that don't know, it is a, a more of a sauce um, than it is a chili, and it's very very uh, liquidy, um, and it's got a lot of cinnamon in it. I believe it's Greek in in its origin. There was a, a, a sort of Greek immigrant that started the restaurant, but it is served on top of a bed of uh, spaghetti noodles and the five way would be, so you've got noodles, chili, cheese, cold shredded cheese, uh, amazing uh, beans and onions. And uh, you can throw some hot sauce on there and, and call it a day. I was in Cincinnati with my wife this past summer. It wasn't the first time I was in the city. The first time I was in the city was actually in 2003 to see fish during that February 2003 tour but it was so cold and rainy, not even snowy. It was just cold and rainy that summer, not summer, that winter. Uh, my roommate and I spent pretty much all the time in our hotel in between shows. So we did not get to explore the city. This past summer, it was about to rain for two days straight. It didn't rain, but it was about to. Like any second, it felt like it was going to, said the forecast. Yeah. This is why I live in Charleston, South Carolina now, where it's right now, it's the most beautiful, sunny 67 degree day. Yeah, the winters in, in Ohio are just gray and I, I don't miss the gray death. <laughs> yeah, but, but this summer was, aside from the impending storm, the only time it actually did rain was right when we got to the Reds game. So, of course, it had to delay it for, yeah. <laughs> for two hours. But Skyline Chili, we went to the one in Covington, Kentucky. That's where we okay. stayed, right over the river. Yep. And I thought that Skyline Chili was a type of chili. I didn't realize that it was a franchise. I didn't realize mm -hmm. it was the name of the restaurant. Mm -hmm. And then when I ate it, I got it, you know, how all the ways. I got it five ways. Yes. Yes. And I thought it had the same flavor profile as Chef Boyardee. And I mean that as a compliment. Yeah, it's it's very much a comfort food or a nostalgia food for me. Yeah. 
I, I could see that. <laughs> and for anyone out there who hasn't been to Cincinnati, highly recommended to check it out. Uh, you can go see the William Howard Taft House, which is a lot of fun if you're an American history nerd. Uh, walk along the riverfront, which was a great time. And Covington, Kentucky is, depending on the block you're walking on, either absolutely beautiful or a possible nightmare of opiate withdrawal, depending on what building you're looking at. Uh, yeah. I would give thumbs up. For for a visitor, at least my time in Cincinnati was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a great it's a great town. Finally, when it comes to fish, what is the weirdest thing you've ever seen at a fish show? Wow, uh, that's a tough question. A lot of weird things over the years, <laughs> um, over the thirty years or, or so. But the one that comes to mind that we laugh about a lot uh, was was in the parking lot of Star Lake in, in nineteen ninety eight. And uh, a fantastic show with a monster runaway gym uh, that that sort of centered the second set. But uh, there was there was a group of kids standing around a car, and, and we were waiting, you know, for the parking lot to clear out. And we noticed these kids kind of looking a little little fishy, a little strange. And and we noticed it was cold. It was getting cold, and one of them didn't have any pants on. And we thought that was really weird because uh, he was in his underwear and they were kind of just sheepishly like standing around. And, and finally one of us went over there just to like ask if they needed help. Um, well, it turned out that the one guy threw his pants away mid show and his car keys were in the pants. And so they couldn't leave the show because he had thrown his pants away. <laughs> Get it together, man. <laughs> so that one makes me laugh because we just thought we've all been there before. And thankfully I never threw my pants away. When was this show played? So today's show, June 21st, 1994, as we mentioned earlier, was at the very beginning of the 1994 summer tour. Fish played 45 shows in the spring and summer of 94. They kind of bled into each other, the two tours. It's an astronomical amount of music. They played 17 shows in June alone which is more than every other day. So mostly across the West and the Midwest. Uh, if you do combine the spring and summer tours, which I do looking at it, they played 73 shows from the beginning of April through the middle of July. That's that's crazy. That, that, yeah, that's the amount of, of music they were playing and performing was, was astronomical back then. It's more than the maximum amount of music they play in a whole year now. They yeah. were a different band back then, right? They were at a different standing, of course. You know, we always say they were hungry. That phrase is used a lot when we talk about fish in the 90s. And this show and this tour shows it. I think yeah. they were trying everything. Yeah. I mean, I think the hunger is there. I think there's a, a word I often use when I think about 94, especially 95, is, is muscular. You know, if you think about fitness and, you know, I'm a musician, I know you are too. And that's, that's another thing I love about this podcast is just that perspective of, of sort of musical experience. But when you are practicing for eight hours a day and then you play for three hours a night and then you practice probably for an hour on the bus afterwards, like you are, you are fit, you are at the peak level of performance. And yeah, I think that comes through on the recording. I agree with you with that word muscular, although I think I would apply it more to 95. I think more yeah. people, at least on this yeah. podcast, I've chosen yeah. fall 95 or summer 95 shows as opposed to 
for sure. show from 94 uh because in, in the summer 94 i think they were a little more sleek a little more athletic in, yeah. in their playing at least yeah they were a little bit quicker at a turn depending on where they wanted to do or what they wanted to do yeah the i and I've, I've often heard people say like the ideas were coming almost faster than they could process you know yeah. when it came to improvisation they would just explore you know it was moment by moment phrase by phrase bar by bar and they would explore different uh textures different progressions and again we'll get into it but at the split up and a melt from this show is a perfect example of that where you really just have this complete leap of faith into in this case a uh, the relative uh minor i'm sorry the relative major key uh of the, the key that it's supposed to be in you know and it's like well let's go there because it sounds really great and and sure enough you get this beautiful passage but yeah, that for sure. I agree with that 100%. You could also hear it in something as usually straightforward as Chalk's Torture. Yeah. And where they hear yep. the idea for a tease. And you know what? Let's not even think about it. Let's just do it. Let's play this song. It's the sort of thing where when I would play drums with my friends in my basement, where I wish that I could, I wish they all knew that song that just popped into my head. And I wish we could all just start playing it. We were in high school. We were like 13 or 14 or 15. Obviously, we couldn't. We weren't polished musicians. But Fish, at this point in the summer of 94, were the most yeah. polished of musicians. But yeah. They also had that mentality, like that ADD, but the ability to catch up and make it a reality in real time. Yeah, and it's a sense of humor. Um, and this is something that uh, anyone that loves this band or or is aware of this band, I think even just, hey, there's a guy in a dress playing a vacuum cleaner. People know that they are uh, humorous, right? And people know there's a sense of fun about the band. And I think I'm a old old school writer and poetics guy. And we, we in grad school, we used to talk about the phrase serious play. And, and serious play is this wonderful idea that, you know, we can take a very kind of disciplined art form or medium and we can inject it with a sense of fun and humor and childlike joy, but doing it in, in a very deliberate, thoughtful way and a very practiced way. And you had that kind of discipline and you had that sense of humor going head to head with fish back then to where, yeah, rock and roll hoochie coo, which has a lyric that references a, a fire alarm. Right. So they're like, this very small, subtle gesture, but very wink, wink, nod, nod, and without missing a beat and without, you know, pausing to even think about it. They just, they rip into it. So I love it. I think you said it all right there, but uh, <laughs> on a more practical way uh, for the summer 94, I think on the surface, they were doing two things for this season, for this extended spring summer tour. First, they were chipping away at becoming headliners at larger venues, whether it's the Beacon Theater in April in New York City, uh, Red Rocks toward the beginning of June, or Great Woods and Jones Beach in July. So these bigger venues, whether they're theaters or amphitheaters or summer sheds, where they were opening for Santana literally two years prior mm -hmm. in July of 1992. They were now booking themselves as the headliners. You know, they didn't sell out most of these shows, but they were kind of willing themselves to join the ranks of top of the line amphitheater tours. This band that is just starting to be well known a little bit outside of New England, they're now headlining that same venue. Yeah. They're not going to sell it out by a long shot, 
but they're putting themselves up there in the kind of perception is reality. Like maybe if we just do it enough, it will happen. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think to, to force it's a reckoning from the music industry, from executives at record labels to say, who the hell is this band of, of weirdos uh, from Vermont of all places who are playing this pastiche of jazz and metal and, and rock and roll and, how are they selling this? And I think that was the phenomenon that we come into with this show and this tour for me, at least the zoo prior year had been very, it was a sparse crowd, right? It was, there were people there and there was a vibe to it, but it didn't feel like this kind of juggernaut thing that music hall. And again, if you watch the video on YouTube for the listeners who are interested, there's almost a full show uh, full full video fan shot video recording of the show on YouTube. <clears throat> you really feel the energy of the crowd, and it was something to behold. I had been to concerts before, but I'd never under I'd never seen or been able to like experience that kind of crowd energy before. And and I think Fish, like you said, was kind of they were they were on this train. They were willing it to happen. There was a sense of dedication to it, but they were bringing people along. And, and you jumped on the train and you thought, "Let's go! This is this feels exciting." I'm glad you brought up record executives because the second thing that I saw as a trend or a pattern during this tour is, and this is much more on the surface, they were promoting Hoist, which mm-hmm. was released at the end of March. So looking at the set lists, you can't really go more than two shows without hearing all or at least one of the following songs. You're going to hear Julius, Scent of a Mule, Sample in a Jar, Down with Disease, or Wolfman's Brother, and possibly Simple, which allegedly was recorded for Hoist, but was left off the album. It was really a familiar character in the first half of 1994. Some of the best versions of Simple ever played were on this tour and during this year. So it seemed like this tour was the last chance for a lot of fans to see Fish in a very small venue, with maybe exceptions like when they played, I uh, can't, the, it's escaping me now, was it the Metro like in Philadelphia a few years ago, the uh, Sirius XM? Yep. Yeah, and I mean, I saw them at the Fox Theater where they first played in 94, and they went back there in 2009. I was yeah. able to get tickets for that, which, though they weren't quite, um, didn't feel like they were ready to come back yet uh, at that time, that first year, but that was a pretty intimate show. And you're right. It was, and the, and I love talking about the venue itself and, and we can get into it more because the acoustics and, and being sensitive to sonic ambience and just, you know, what, what, what does it mean to be at a show and experience it firsthand? And even does it come through on the recording and asking all those important questions as we look back historically at it, music hall had a, an absolute vibe and it's very haunted. And, and, and as a theater, you know, you get this beautiful acoustic environment that I think they wanted to take advantage of. And, and you see that in a number of ways throughout the show. I'll just add to to hoist, you know, I love that album. I do remember the day it dropped. I, I picked up a, a CD copy and there's a reason I think they wanted to push it so hard. I think they were really proud of it. I think it was the poppiest thing they'd ever done. You know, songs like Julius and Sample in a Jar are absolute finger snapping, you know, radio hits that that maybe they didn't chart the way that, that, that they might in a different era. But you know, that was it was pure pop songwriting with that 
you know, certain that, that, that fishy blend of, of genres and styles, but the, on this recording too, in this show, those, those tunes get a treatment that I think, you know, there's that sense of pride. There's that, that extra mustard, as we say in the solos and, and they really sound terrific. And to wrap it all up, we touched on this in terms of uh, their sound, what fish sounded like, what they were playing in this summer of 94. I think that they were, if not done with, at least done with focusing on that speed rock and the jazz that helped define their sound in 92 and 93. And they were leaning toward in 94, I think a monster rock sound, like they were trying to fill these larger venues that they Mm -hmm. were jumping into. Uh, But I don't think that would really solidify until 95, until they had the bigger crowds even to fill those venues where 94, it was anyone could get in new year's 95. I remember reading people's reports that it was the first show that they got shut out of, you know, that it wasn't just, you could just walk up and get a ticket, but just the same, the improvisation in 94 also lent itself toward abstract weirdness and teases and covers that we mentioned as if they were like pushing the audience as more people were coming. Can you handle this? Yeah, you might have come here to see bouncing around the room or sample in a jar, but we're going to fuck with you for about 30 minutes with this David Bowie that might have the weirdest sounds you've ever heard live in concert. Right. Yes. That that, you know, I, I use the word challenging a lot with fish. Uh back then. I think there was a this Frank Zappa heritage that they they proudly share that demanded a certain acumen or or uh, articulation of, of listening to to really engage with there was you know this split up and melt again as a perfect example before they get to that beautiful passage in, in E major you get this almost John Zorn New York school of avant skronk noise and it's and it's it's a beautiful noise but it's absolutely grating and, and dissonant and it's I think very hard to listen to uh, unless you know, hey, and this gets into that whole serious play thing, like, hey, there's going to be light at the end of the tunnel. Hey, they're taking me on a journey. I'm here for it. And again, I think with fish, uh, especially back then, it, it just asked a lot of you. Uh, so if you did get sucked in by bouncing around the room, by sampling a jar, you found yourself at the show, you might have imbibed in a, a few uh, strong you know, substances. Suddenly there was going to be a moment of darkness, a moment of of terror even where things got real scary and i think that's what makes music hall to me so exciting is that you had all of that music happening in this very haunted venue very very scary spooky venue well who were you and where were you in the summer of 94 that led you to this show i know this was your second show but how old were you uh were you in school were you uh on summer break what what was going on in your life that you came back to see fish in cincy yeah. So, you know, like I said, was was a, an Ohio boy through and through, raised in Cincinnati. And though I'd seen them the year before, you know, I was like a lot of suburban kids, uh, you know, I was 14 years old, uh, very much bored uh, with a lot of my life. I'll just say, you know, I was going to say pop culture elements of music, but but I was really just a bored kind of disengaged, disinterested kid struggling to make meaning, struggling to find my way and, and to, you know, understand myself and my place in the world. And so I think like a lot of us, you know, 
I was a bit lost. Uh, and it's not that like I found fish and everything got better, but I think, you know, with Megadeth posters on the wall and a love and an equal love of Janet Jackson and, and George Michael, and I grew up on MTV and I still love MTV. There's for those that don't know on YouTube TV, there's MTV classic. It is a channel that just plays music videos. And I still watch it to this day. It's very calming and soothing. So I, I had this really, you know, diverse set of musical interests at that time. And I was starting to, I hadn't started playing bass yet. That is my primary instrument. I think I started playing about a year later. Music was becoming more and more important to me and sports and, and academics. Sorry, mom and dad were, were becoming less and less important. And on top of that, you know, I was a burgeoning psychonaut, you know, I don't know how else to put it. I was experimenting with drugs. I was interested in pushing the boundaries in my own brain, my own consciousness. The motives were pure, you know, though my alcoholism and addiction will kick in years later uh, and really turn all that on its head. At the time, I think as a teenager, like a lot of us, I just wanted to know more and learn more and see more. And to be on that journey and then to discover a band like Fish and my brother brought home Picture of Nectar in 1992. Shout out to Brad for doing that because I put on Llama and I had never heard anything like that in my life. I loved guitar heroics bands, you know, whether it was Richie Sambora or somebody like Dave Mustaine or, or somebody playing guitar in Metallica, like Kirk Hammett. Like I loved stuff like that. So to hear a person doing that in this kind of really weird band that, that had all these diverse influences, it, again, it just made sense to me. And so I was very much hungry. I'll use the word hunger to describe fish at the time, but I think I was hungry too. Uh, as a teenager, you know, I wanted more out of out of the music I was hearing, out of life itself. And so this show in particular, again, I was 14 years old. I hadn't yet turned 15. I had never had a psychedelic experience. But the young man I went to this show with, my best friend Charles, shout out to, to Chuck Alien, if you're out there listening. Uh, he obtained some Felix the Cat LSD. And he said, do you do you want to do this with me? And I said, I think so. I was very, very nervous, very scared, uh, you know, as, as, a, as we often are because we hadn't embarked on that journey, but it felt right. And, uh, and it was right. You know, this, this became a, a pinnacle moment for me. It's when a lot of those doors open that stay open forever. And I think Fish's music was the perfect metaphor vehicle, call it what you will for that journey that I took, you know, in my own head, because, whether it's Hakeem Bey's temporary autonomous zones or Joseph Campbell's, you know, power of myth, like whatever you want to call the experience of the three hours of a concert that Fish was able to provide at the time, which was this very safe space with a musical accompaniment that that matched your hero's journey that you were on in your head almost perfectly. And you're going to survive. You're going to come out the other side. Uh, maybe, you know, you don't know, but but you, you have faith and, and, and it's, I think that lightness, that darkness, all those wonderful mixes. And so I was ready for it. But, you know, we'll get into the music. Set one. Well, Kev, you brought up a few times the word haunting and the Cincinnati Music Hall specifically. Before we hit record, you sent me an article a few days ago from Cincinnati Magazine, which I will include in the show notes about how Cincinnati Music Hall, the building itself, is 
so haunted. It doesn't just say that it's haunted. <laughs> it's so haunted. And yeah. in a summary, and you, I'll probably, I should leave it to you, but I'll just very quickly from a reading comprehension standpoint, as an English teacher, that's what I do. Basically, it just seems that the ground on which this venue was built in the late 1800s was used several times for different purposes as kind of a uh, like a city hall sort of or an exposition hall. And there just seemed to be bulldozers, not literally, but uh, deconstructions and deaths all over this area of Cincinnati and bones that were never excavated until mm-hmm. the city decided to build a new building there, but never quite got all the skeletons up from the ground. Is that about right? Yeah. I mean, I think it was a pauper's cemetery at one point. Like there was multiple excavations in which they, I saw a number 200 some skeletons had to be dealt with as they built this thing. So yeah, you've got this, a uh, really powerful sense of uh, the spiritual or the the sort of ghostly apparitions that that float around in this venue, and it's beautiful um, music hall. You can you can Google you know pictures uh, of the stage set and uh, what it looks like, and and I'll just say you know it's ornate, it's beautiful, the acoustics, and it's also it was a free for all. So you had the orchestra pit, which became a mosh pit. Um, you know, kids, kids kind of moshed to this music back then. People say, what, you know, like I remember seeing the samples, uh, the same year, uh, at, at a tiny club that my high school band would later play at. Uh, but I love the samples out of, uh, Boulder, Colorado, Sean Kelly's band. And we were crowd surfing and, and that's what you did because it was like all the rage. Uh, but yeah, this venue was, was very special. You felt it immediately. And I think the band felt it too, more importantly. And I love this idea of this very ornate music hall. I don't have the date or the year offhand, but I know from reading that article that it was built in the late 1800s in Cincinnati, which is a riverboat town, right? So there's this kind of, I don't know if I want to say mysticism. I don't mean it like that, but it's, it's of another time. It's it's of another time. It's based, it's, you know, before electricity was widely spread or widely used a time of the closing of the old West, that sort of thing, you know, kind of like uh, St. Louis in that sense, where it's kind of the gateway to the rest of the continent. And so Cincinnati, and those of you listening at home, if you couldn't tell, I had a really great time uh, for my wife and I, for our two or three days there this past summer, researching the history and seeing the oldest parts of the city. That's one of our passions. I just like this idea that this beautiful ornate music hall has this sense of um, this evil sense to it. Yeah. They don't have to be bad ghosts. They could be, they could be good ghosts, but it's still this doorway as we record this during October, you know, spooky season, this doorway between the dead and the living. And now our favorite band is playing there during a time in their playing when not everything was always happy times. No. And I I think, you know, there's two things. Well, one, Cincinnati becomes like one of Fish's favorite stops. This doesn't happen for a little bit, but this is what leads to, I think you've got the crown, which is what it was called in 98. That's a fantastic show. Very high on my list uh, of the second set as like single set performances, uh, what I would just call like a perfect set. That felt really special. And then they came back and do a two night stand. And I think anytime you see that jump from a single night show to a two night stand or three, 
you know that the band likes it. Like they like the city, they like the venue. So I think that this might have planted that seed of like, hey, this is a great market for us. This is a great crowd. People are really stoked. But I think when it came, when it came to that spooky, that spookiness, you know, one thing about fish I love and, and Trey in particular is the Languedoc, the original, the OG Languedoc. And, and I know most of the guitars he still uses are built by Paul and, and have a, a semi hollow body or full hollow body. But the OG is a hollow body and, and the feedback he would get, uh, which kind of defines his sound, particularly then, this night becomes a, a absolute monster of, I just, it's, it's almost disparately proportioned compared to the rest of his tone. And there are times on the recording where it sounds like there are spirits making noise. I'll just say that. There sounds like some wailing or some some gnashing of teeth going on. And yeah, it's like, I think, they acknowledged it from the rip, you know, and, and whenever we were ready to get into the songs, you know, I think that that first moment in runaway Jim, when Mike, he, he, there's a, a bass trill, uh, a little run that he does that I've never heard him do in any other runaway Jim, but it seems like a signal. It seems like a call to the ships, you know, Vikings or, you know, some kind of like, we're going to war, we're going to the other side, there's a portal open. I don't know what it is, but I hear it and it gives me goosebumps every time I listen to it. Yeah, I noticed it right away. In case anyone, I just missed the transition that this is set one. It opens with Runaway Jim. Yeah, I wrote that Mike plays a little riff at the very beginning. And this, to me, at least the recording that I listened to, the audience recording, this is why People for a Louder Mike was eventually developed in 1996 because you could hear Mike playing with the intensity and the audacity that we could now associate with him. But at the time, it sounds kind of thin compared to the other band members. It probably didn't feel that way in real time, in person. But 20 years later, or however many years later, 30 years later, <laughs> getting there, actually. I got to carry the right. Um it, it, it sounds like he's intense, but it sounds like he needs a new, he needs to level up. But he's taking the lead at the beginning. And then I heard the spooky piano jam uh, from Paige before they get back into the usual part oh, yeah. of the song. To me, it was Paige that kind of bridged the gap between let's get spooky. 
Yeah. And, and I think Chris Carota on lighting, uh, you, again, the video I think is really important to watch if you want to really kind of feel the, the, the feels and, and, and what was it like to be there because you, you, you see them start this jam. And again, this is the opener. And I distinctly remember sprinting down again, it was general admission. There was, there was a sense of absolute chaos when it came to, you know, where to go. And we ran in the door and we ran down the aisle full sprint to, to the sounds of runaway gym, which to me is like the perfect opener still to this day. But yeah, when they start that jam, Kuroda lowers the lights. And this is another thing I want to really stress for people who didn't see fish back then. Chris's light show now is, is another level. It's, it's award-winning for a reason. It's, it's remarkable. All the toys he has back then it was, a, it was a very sparse, almost Spartan setup and he had less to work with, but I think the effect was almost more powerful because in this case, he just lowers the lights completely. So you have almost pitch black on stage. You've got these loose John Carpenter's fog. If, you, if you've seen the fog, these loose silhouettes of, of shaggy looking dudes that you don't even really know what they look like anyway, because we didn't have the internet yet. Just playing this, this really kind of heavy, heavy music. Um, and it was scary. It just it was a spectacle that didn't seem to to line up with any of the pop music you know reference points that I was coming into this with. And they go right into mound, which you and I had different opinions about this. To me, listening to it nearly thirty years later, twenty nine, if I did carry the one this time, I wrote that it's kind of an unremarkable, normal version of mound. But to me, listening to it in retrospect, because it's such a classic and a rarity. At this point, like in 2023, it's a big deal if they get through mound without any flubs, you know, with the dex- that, but the dexterity that- of this version is like we talked about at the beginning of our conversation. They're just completely fluid. So in oh, 1994, yeah. this is a good version of mound in 2023. It's oh, wow. I, I remember when they used to play it like this. Yeah. And I, and again, I think, you know, so you talked about Mike's tone. I love his tone here. I think, you know, again, I mean, maybe it's a YouTube recording where the, there's been some remastering done of the audio, but I love the soundstage of fish at this time. I think the clarity of, of instruments, the clarity of each person, you know, when you look at like a, a soundstage or you look at, you know, stage sound and, and can you hear each person arti- articulate themselves on their instrument? I think it comes through really clearly here this feels like Mike's show. This is uh, another thing that about this particular night that that kind of, for me, cemented Fish and, and particularly Mike Gordon and his bass playing as as a really profound influence and probably why I end up picking up the bass. You know, less than a year later, it starts with the Runaway Jim and that that moment where he calls everybody to arms. It really kind of mound is Mike's song. Literally, he wrote it. Yeah. And again, that's a strange call for the second song. And it felt like they were letting Mike take over. And I think this sounds fantastic and demonic. I think Mound is a very dark, spooky song. It's very Halloween-esque, right? Like we're in October. And lyrically and thematically, it is this kind of, you know, wild ride through Mike's head of these characters from Rift. And uh, yeah, you know, I just think it sounds really, really fantastic. Trey is the rhythmic accompaniment and, and, I just think it's they're they're firing on all cylinders, and I think it comes through so clearly, even on songs like Mound that seem almost you know uh, choreographed or, or very much like they're non-jamming vehicles. But yeah, it's like every song in this first little little 
suite of songs because there's no real sets here. I just think there's like, again, that there's something extra going on. Yeah, I, I agree with what you said about Mound. Obviously, it is written by Mike, but your description of it, I think I'm remembering this correctly, but I think Mike once said that he wrote the lyrics to it, if not the music, after watching After Hours, the Martin Scorsese movie, which mm-hmm. itself is kind of this dark nightmare mm-hmm. dreamscape yeah. uh, procession of events that don't really add up or make sense in a sequential linear way. And that's kind of how Mound sounds. Yeah. I mean, I think Rift is a dark album, right? I think thematically it it is wrestling with some heavy stuff and sure enough, it's ice pops up, you know, again, a pretty dark, almost gloomy, dreadful song. And, and they happen to be funky and, and danceable, but that's fish for you. I think back then they could marry up these really kind of thorny, naughty compositional stuff with, with dance music. And that's, Again, I think what what has always drawn me to them. I will add as just an anecdote. So Music Hall has a really interesting stage setup. If you look at the, the pictures of it online, it's got wings. So the stage kind of runs across like a proscenium. And then, and then it's got these really wide wings that are still level with the original stage, but they extend all the way across and it becomes like a, a little doorway on the side. We jumped up on those things. So back then... Again, it was very much a free for all. And my friend Charles that I was with that had fed me this Felix the Cat that we were both experiencing decided during Mound to jump on the stage. And, <laughs> you know, Karini, Karini wasn't really a thing yet. And we weren't, we were off to the side. We were like kind of five feet from Paige's rig, but he jumps up and looks to, and it's like six feet up and he reaches down, he pulled me up. And this is a really kind of core memory for me because we were all level with the band and I turned around and I kind of saw what they saw and it was during mound. So there's like the clap along that Fishman is like, you know, purposefully obfuscating with his beat, but uh, the energy from the crowd. And again, in that particular mind state uh, and being susceptible to, to those kind of forces, uh, it was something to behold. I don't know how the band could feed off that and can, and almost work with it the way they do. I mean, that takes a real certain, you know, I think psychic uh, or, or psych- psychology maybe uh, is the word, but yeah, it was really, and sure enough, they were like, some cop was like, get down right now. And we did, but that was all that they said was just, please don't do that. You know, yeah. there was no like, you're these days they would probably put the cost on you or tase you from the stage. <laughs> And you mentioned it's ice, but just so we know, it goes Runaway Jim Mound, Sample in a Jar is played before it's ice, because let's not forget, we can't go three songs without playing a song from Hoist. And this song is fabulous. This performance is so good. Yeah, it's so good. It's pretty close to the album version, which is not a bad thing with great drum fills and a big epic ending all the way at four minutes. It's like you could press play on the album and press play on this live track and they'd probably line up within eight seconds of each other.
and and I think because the readings of these songs were were becoming so routine, I I'm always like, well, how do you how do you tell if it's a little unique, a little different, a little um, extra? But if you watch this video, Trey's headbanging in particular during this song as he's performing, as he's soloing. This is a man possessed, and I think that word applies here with how haunted Music Hall is. <laughs> um, and there's a comment on the YouTube video that I love that just says, "This is the best sample ever." And and I, I we don't think of Sample in a Jar as having like best versions, or it's not a jamming chart song. But I'm I, I hear that solo, and and he builds it and builds it, and he wields that languidoc dist, uh, feedback and distort, and it it is a remarkable song. In, in a time at which, you know, I think it was hard pressed to find a, a better version of that song. But, you know, I think this one is, is fantastic. And then after a sample in a jar is it's ice, which is a really good performance as well. I thought in real time and listening that this is a good song. I mean, a good show that if you're trying to get people in someone trying to get someone into fish, play them this first set. It's, concise but it also has its jams like it's ice has a classic piano solo trey pushes the wawa pedal which he does not always do Um, Mm -hmm. mike makes his statement fishman is killing it on i hat on hi-hat and they're back to the song by seven minutes so it's longer than most people would expect a typical song to be i'm talking people who are not really into jam bands or improvisational music right like more um, commercial stuff where songs have to be between three and five minutes it's mm-hmm. ice. It just pushes it a little bit past that. And then they get back to it. And then my favorite part of the show, as I imagine most people, their most memorable part of the show, they start playing the horse. And mm-hmm. I love how Trey is singing his most earnest, concentrated <laughs> voice. We talk a lot about fish in 3.0 and Trey's vocals are yep. like, you know, he's obviously practiced and it's his most improved aspect. Mm-hmm. And he's so sincere. And then a fire alarm goes off just over. Yeah. A yeah. The- That's kind of the, you know, the show, if it has a calling card or, or people know the music hall show, it's the fire alarm show. I'll just say, you know, being there and this is, again, you listen to the, the, or watch the YouTube recording. I don't know if it comes through on the um, audience recording, um, but 
you hear a bell and it sounds like we thought it was part of the show. So it starts going off and it's soft enough. You can still hear Trey sing and play his guitar, but, but something was off and we were, we were all kind of laughing like this is part of the show because you just didn't know. I mean, back then there was enough stage antics and theatrics that it might as well be. And then, yeah, he does stop playing and makes the announcement. But what proceeded was, I think, to this day, again, jumping up on stage and being, just being told to get down or, in this case, filing out of a venue, evacuating an entire venue of people, and then just milling about outside and then coming back in uh, as if nothing had happened. You know, so strange. How long was the break? Uh, I want to say not long, probably 10 or 15 minutes. Again, being under the influence of a, pr- a pretty powerful psychedelic, I you know, was, was floating. I I don't remember much except that it was strange, uh, to be around fire trucks and fire, the fire chief was there and every, all the fans just milling about. And, and again, so music hall is downtown Cincinnati with Washington square park right across the street. And there were nitrous tanks and, and all the uh, accoutrements of, of the scene were starting to, you know, embellish the surroundings, but all those people that were outside the show, they came right back. They, they came in when we went right back in. So anyone that didn't have a ticket, they came in during, during the fire alarm. And it, it led to an even rowdier, you know, more raucous crowd because all the ticketless fans were suddenly inside. Hi, everybody. Brian here to welcome you to the set break of today's episode of Attendance Bias. First, thank you for listening. And second, just a quick reminder to tell you that even though attendance bias comes to you for free, it does take a lot of work and it does take quite a bit of money to keep the lights on here at production. So I just wanted to ask a small favor if you could support the podcast in any number of the following ways. If you could leave a review or a rating of it on whichever podcast app you use. If you could spread the word telling a friend or someone you think may be interested in it about it. Or probably the most concrete way is to go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash attendance bias and donate however much you can financially to help with the continuing costs of attendance bias. So thank you again so much for listening and I hope you enjoy the second half of today's episode. Set two. And Fish only pushes that in set two. When they open with fire, which is the only choice, it's got to be. You know, this is long before they ever played Dicks and the Fish social media Twitter handle or whoever pushes that out says that, you know, due to a thunderstorm, Fish will now play one long ass set. This is the OG long ass set. Yeah. This set, it's set to officially, but it's an hour and 40 minutes. And it starts with Fire by Jimi Hendrix with a really intense guitar solo, full-on guitar jam.
my first thought was this is as good as fish was in 1994. Like they're clearly doing special for the crowd that had to evacuate. And now the the fans that didn't have to evacuate, but got in anyway. Yeah. I mean, and and again, what, what band is just capable of, of acknowledging the moment, just ripping off a, a cover of a song as a, a wink and a nod to what just transpired it felt so right. And as a huge classic rock kid, you know, loving Hendrix and I know Trey loves Hendrix as well. It just, it was so perfect that it, it, like you said, there was no, there was no other song to play. Uh, That was the, that was the one. And it just, we came back in and it felt like we're going to be here the rest of the night. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, They, after fire, they follow up with poor heart, which is a complete change of tone but keeps the energy up just the same. And again, can't go three songs without hoist. They finish this opening trifecta of the set with down with disease. And my first thought hearing this is that it's fun to hear the band. They weren't there with jamming the song yet, right? It was still a pretty new song. They they were working on it at the end of 1993, but it didn't debut as down with disease proper until 94, that they're kind of exploring the dynamics of the song itself before seeing how well they could improvise with it. Yeah. And I'll just, you know, backing up a step, I think both these songs are Mike's song. And and I think, you know, Poor Heart, he wrote, and, and this is his show. Every song selection, and I know Down With Disease is a band thing. It's more of a, a group song. And I think Trey's and, and maybe Tom Marshall get the credit there. But, you know, it opens with a Mike sort of bass effect solo. I mean, I think Again, all of these things for me point to it being a chance for Mike to shine, to lead, uh, because at the time, you know, Trey was very much the leader. This is well before, you know, the funk era in which you had him taking a backseat. And even in 95, when he introduced the drum kit and he really stepped back from like trying to drive and direct the improv and, and the jamming. So you've got Mike really almost like, again, that willfulness, like, hey, step up, do something, you know, let's see what you got. And I think the disease is fantastic, too. It's a traditional reading of it. Sure. But I I watched it last night and it's just got that that fire to it, you know, to, to use the that pun. I mean, it's got that that energy to it.
it still has the na 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 ending, which I love. I love yeah. that. Yeah, it was. It they. I love Hoist. It's so. There's so much traditional, you know, songwriting or songcraft, right? When you've got like the pop canon, I think they were very aware of like how do we how do we add a vocal coda to like make the song a little more radio friendly? Like they were thinking like that. And and I think to good effect, it's a terrific version of the song. If you like them short and, and fiery. Yeah. They're very buoyant. Early versions of down with disease are straight rock and roll. Uh, yeah. When I got into fish in 96 and then first saw them in 97, down with disease was already kind of a funk spacey jam vehicle. But... Jam. Yeah. Yeah. Back then it was just kind of like your, your first set filler not filler because that's that's an unfair term but but yeah i mean it might just appear in the middle of a first set yep but up next we go back to i think rift the album that is uh with my friend my friend with a huge crowd reaction when they're starting playing right in the middle of the song i wrote it at uh four minutes and 30 seconds that there's a big crowd reaction and mike starts playing you mentioned earlier uh rick derringer's rock and roll hoochie coo and then fishman hears it once and then hops right on it. And before you know it, like maybe a full bar later, the whole band is playing the song for over two minutes. Like what we were discussing earlier, it's like a thing where it's obviously unrehearsed. They didn't know they were to come out and play it, but it's a sort of thing where you said they play for rehearse for whatever it was, eight hours and then play for three hours. And then, you know, they're living together. They're traveling together. They do have ESP. And I, you know, the thing about this band that that to this day, I don't really see this or hear this anywhere else. And I think it's why their their legacy is as, is as powerful as it is. You've got this sort of sense that 
these guys are like radio stations. They've got like music radio stations in their heads. And, and I know I feel that way as a child of the nine, 80s and 90s and growing up with MTV and, and music just kind of running through your head at all times. So I think Trey is definitely that way. And when he has that or whoever in the band suddenly just spits out that melody, spits out that uh, that little phrase or that snippet of, the, of a song, they can all latch on to it immediately because they just have that sort of antenna. Uh, antenna is a good word for it. And and again, there's that sense, and I, I didn't even know this at the time, but there's a lyric in Rock and Roll Hoochie Q that references, you know, smoke in and, and a fire. And it's like, is that why they played it? Is it like this little gesture, this little nod to the fire alarm? Or is it just because that melody naturally appears out of my friend, my friend, which maybe it's in the same key of? I don't know. I mean, I, that's that that fun sort of mystery to fish and, and the way they used to address uh, the the possibilities and the openness of music back then. There was, you know, I, I felt really hard for this band because, you know, whether it was the the sense of danger and i do mean danger because there was when you add psychedelics to the mix obviously you're mm-hmm. taking that, that that you know inner inner hero's journey of of what what campbell's like you know will a, a deliberate schizophrenia right like am i going to be okay but when you have a band that can and will do anything musically on stage or or theatrically or you know, there's a sense of uh you know, uh, it's a little dangerous. And I, I love that kind of mystery where you never, you were never really sure if it was planned or not. You were never sure if it was completely improvised or had they talked about it before. And I mean, to this day, we can all guess, but we don't know. Um, right. But I, but I, I also think my friend, my friend is the, the, the point of this concert when things got really dark. And I mean that in the best way. And they got heavy. And again, as a metal kid, you know, with Megadeth posters on the wall, when, when Trey would channel that kind of Slayer type of tone, and, and he talks about Slayer uh, back then and Rain and Blood being like one of his favorite records, I, I love that. I think this gets really metal and really heavy and bleeds right into, you know, the high point of the show. Right, which is split open and melt. And you talk about that hero's journey that, well, this song is what for me kind of solidifies it because I've talked extensively about this podcast, about how I'm kind of back and forth with Split Open and Out. It's almost like a case-by-case basis. I can never call it my favorite song because the next version of it might drive me, you know, to go get a drink and go to the bathroom <laughs> right. uh, more recently than previously, I can say. But Split Open and Out is the biggest risk, I think, that they can take at this time, at least, because it's not. it doesn't always hold together by definition, by structure of the song they take it all the way out there. And when you go all the way out there, sometimes you may not make it back, but this time they do. And you referenced this jam right in the middle of it. I think it's at about four minutes or maybe five and a half minutes. It sounds like the beginnings of what would become free where they go back and forth.
I've heard people say that. I don't. I don't know that I've like gone to that lengths and pursued that and, and done a case or a side by side comparison. But yeah, you know, I. I'll just say too, I'm a huge jazz fan. So you know, if it's metal and it's jazz, are my are my two favorite genres. Here's this fish song that, com- that combines the two. You know, it's got its roots in jazz charts and horn charts because he wrote it for uh, Lawn Boy with with all the horns. But yeah, the jam becomes this this really dissonant, really kind of chaotic thing. And to your point, yeah, it is like a sort of litmus test. It's sort of how much can you take of this of this really wild grading discord before in this case before the payoff and i think the the payoff's important with fish right if it was just 20 minutes of noise which we we know they have done uh they've done that before you know it's it's maybe just a, an endurance test but in this case there is a payoff and there is this light at the end of the tunnel uh and it does happen you know after this really intense period of noise and what i, I did a little bit of work with my my guitar to, I was like, why does it sound so good? Well, <laughs> the, the song itself, the jam itself is in C sharp minor. And what they, what Mike does is he, he lands on E major and he somehow finds his way to this. And he, again, the bass is so front and center from the rip. Usually Trey kind of leads things when they get to the jam. He's usually doing some voicings and some phrases, some cool guitar stuff. Mike is like immediately you know down 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 and he just like grinds on this one note you know trilling it i think finger style this is before he played with the pick most of the time yeah he lands on that e and the e major is the relative major of of c sharp minor and when you have a relative chord it's you know again it's like the same notes uh so this the notes of e major are the same notes as c sharp minor all the way through. So you have that perfect harmony uh, of, you know, ma- minor to major. And it's, so it's like, you've got this really cool, uh, I think, contrast between like the darkness and the chaos and the noise. And then it's like, ah, we landed on what to my ears sounds like a Celtic wedding or like some kind of Gaelic, you know, ceremony where, uh, the band is now kind of dancing through the forest together. And it's, it, it really does, to me, sound magical and, and mystical.
I, that's a really good description. They land, uh, to using your words, they kind of land on it at nine and a half minutes where Fishman is playing this literal speed jazz uh, drum beat, this kind of swing speed jazz drum beat. And then two minutes later, by 11 minutes and 20 seconds, Page leads the way with this progression. And I've never be, been able to write a really pleasant progression in split open and melts. Yeah. It's usually so jagged. But yeah. this time it's really chill. And it's, this is one of my favorite versions that I've heard in, you know, in, in my recent memory. Yeah. It's that E major is very just pleasing to the ear, right? Like it's, it, it sounds as if it was written beforehand because again, you know, Mike, I think leads this jam and drives this thing. And he's the one playing that him and like you said, him and Paige kind of playing with comps, uh, that chord progression, but, but Trey picks up on it so quickly. Fishman locks in and it, again, it's a full band thing. And I think that to me, that hallmark of early fish is the ability for the band itself, the whole unit to move in one direction. And that's what makes fall 95. I think that the, for me personally, that sort of culmination of all this stuff, it's when you had these full band improvisational moments that sounded kind of orchestrated uh, is the only word I can think of. It sounds like they had arrived there together. And to do that spontaneously as a musician myself, I know how hard it is. So it's the result of practicing and practicing and practicing. But yeah, this this particular version uh, um, of Melt, I think there's there's a couple others that I think of when it's, you know, what's what's the best ever, but this is going to be in the running. Yeah, that's that's well put. I would agree. They followed up with Esther, which is a perfect cool down. I'm not the biggest fan of Esther. Uh, a lot of people give me shit for that, but this one is very quick. It's very smooth, and it's hard not to enjoy it. But I didn't notice anything crazy about it, anything outstanding. I just enjoyed it. And kind of a, um, uh, a smoother, slower tune in between two larger rock songs, which would be Chalked as Torture afterward. Yeah, I've got a soft spot for Esther. Shout out to Mike Fitzgerald, who uh, hopefully is listening. He was at this show. He does not like Esther. He was shushed at this show. Speaking <laughs> of uh, Mike, he, he, you know, we were teenage idiots and uh, Mike was being, ex 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 I think, very exuberant during the acoustics that we're going to talk about the acoustic stuff, but, you know, screamed at the top of his lungs, you know, fucking fish or some, some epithet and some giant Wookiee was like, you better get a lid on that. You know, just gave him the, the what for, um, Mike hates Esther. I love Esther. I think this is a fantastic version too, because again, uh, you know, you've got the game hench stuff. You've got that sort of uh, mythology that the band, uh, cultivated, I, I kind of put Esther in that camp. Maybe it's because musically it reminds me of like McGrupp or the backing music for the, the, the thesis, but yeah, you know, it, it's just more of that sort of dark, demented carnival esque stuff that, that, you know, if you're in that headspace, you know, and I got to give a shout out to the, the backdrops. Um, so if you're watching the video of this show, you'll notice there's these really beautiful, colorful, backdrops on the stage and those are lexan uh they're made of lexan plastic by mike's mom marjorie minkin so the minkin backdrops you know corona could do some really cool things with those and the lighting of them again just adds to that ethereal spooky ambience um and and i think on esther done to really great effect 
After that, like I mentioned, is Chalk Does Torture. A perfect rock picked me up after Esther. 94 was a great year for Chalk Dust. I like that they're jamming pretty hard, about three minutes, 45 seconds, complete with a tease of Barracuda by heart. And that that is right to <laughs> yeah, your point about them having radio tuners in their head. Yeah, there's that jukebox, that, that fish jukebox that... At some point, they, they do the summer of covers. I think it's 98, where it's just playing a new cover every night. Um, that's a band that that is, again, just operating at such a high caliber that they can choose to to drop these teases in wherever they like. Uh, they make them fit, and it seems seamless. I think the chalk dust is a ripper um again guitar heroics as like a guy that you know growing up worshiping like eddie van halen and stuff you know those kinds of uh guitar heroes you know trey was was in my mind not not only joining in that rank but sort of like eclipsing in a way because of what he was capable of sonically again i i talk a lot about the the tone of the years but back then but his use of the hollow body and again controlling feedback which is so so hard to do but he could do it in a way that that made it sound like you know he was playing multiple instruments at once i remember in it must have been 1998 or something maybe it was 97 it was spin magazine released one of those what would now be called clickbait articles <laughs> where it's like the 300 greatest guitars or the 100 greatest guitars yeah. or whatever with a little write-up on each one and Trey was not on there, understandably. No, uh, but there was a little insert. It was like a tiny box in the top left corner of one of the pages. And it was called They Might Be Giants. And it was listing a bunch of like up and coming guitarists. It wasn't talking about the band They Might Be Giants. It was, you know, a cheeky love? way. Yeah. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. It was a cheeky way to talk about, oh, these guys aren't on this list, but maybe sometime in the future they will. And I maybe. remember my like 16-year-old yeah. self was so righteous and like, might be he already is right <laughs> right yeah just i think it you know fish has always been not well i can't say that anymore because they've become this phenomenon now but i think they were always like a musician's band right they yeah. if you played if you played an instrument you knew about them um and i think there's yeah there's something to be said for just the geek the geeking out the nerdy now over gear over technology over tone you know they've always been and they were at the forefront of the of the internet, you know. Yeah. They were one of the very first uh, user groups uh, that 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 was even around back in the '90s. And yeah, I think it's it's so cool to see and think about like the pre-internet era, 
whether it's this video that somebody snuck a camcorder into that into music hall and it's like those things weren't small back then and they must have just put it up on the balcony and guarded it put a coat over it but yeah you know it's it's a different time yeah and not only were they not small but they were also not the best quality especially in low lighting and fish as an organization fish inc was very harsh and very very aware of their image being used illegally or without their permission. That's why so little unofficial video exists, you know, because fish was very aware of it. Uh, But that could be its own conversation a little (laughs) bit later. This next segment of the show, I think we have to zoom out a little bit because from my perspective, this is why I'm so glad to have you here amongst, you know, a hundred other reasons, but about this show in particular, this was hard to make sense of just on an audio basis without knowing what was going on or what was coming next and without notes on a set list. So it goes big black furry creatures from Mars, ginseng Sullivan into big black furry creatures from Mars, dog face boy and sweet Adeline. There's more after that because let's not forget this is the longest set because there's <laughs> barely a first set, but they switch around uh, big black furry creatures from Mars is what you would expect as unique as fish is. This is even more different than anything else. They play with their electric chaos, but then for ginseng Sullivan, they start playing on acoustic instruments with no microphones. Mm-hmm. And on the audience recording that I was using, you could barely hear the music. You yeah. got to turn the volume all the way up because not only are they unmiked, and this is not a tiny venue. It's a small venue, but it's a theater. Uh, the crowd was after big black furred creatures from Mars. Uh, the crowd had to have their say. Yeah. And it was almost like the shushing was louder than the playing at some parts. It, and maybe that was Fish trying to challenge their audience. Yeah. I mean, I think a couple of things. One is just the band acknowledging and appreciating the acoustics, uh, the venue itself. They only tried doing things on mics. And I mean, I've heard them say it from stage like, hey, we love this place so much. You guys are being so attentive. It was always two things. It was like, does it sound great in this in this space? And is the crowd listening? And they would often reward the audience for, for one of those two things. And in this case, I think it was both. And they were like, hey, let's try it without mics. I do. I, I remember it. you could hear it in person. Like I said, my friend Mike getting shushed by the by the giant Wookiee was, was <laughs> hilarious because there was a, a real sense of like, hey, we're trying to hear the band and we, we, we really can't because people are being so obnoxious and loud but like you said i mean big black free christian mars is like a a crazy punk metal song that you know warrants a a, that kind of reaction so to do to do that and then have this crazy stark contrast of acoustic you know old-timey folk music is classic i think it's perfectly fish then the acoustic version they they, i mean it's just a couple measures of it it's one run through of, of the the mic verse of that metal punk song, you know, in an acoustic style, right? That that's another moment. I wish it was easier to hear, but you know, fish taking this hilarious, you know, heavy metal ditty that, that doesn't really make sense. And then suddenly we're going to play it on upright bass and acoustic guitar, you know, without missing a beat again, I just think it was, it doesn't really translate to the recording, but I think it was evidence that the band was feeling it. They were having fun. They wanted to bring us on that journey uh, and give us all kind of that that special treatment. Which they do next also after this kind of in and out of Ginseng Sullivan and Big Black Furry Creatures. Yeah. They play Dog Faced Boy, which was very sweet, 
Uh, but it's also, yeah, but it's also uh, unmiked, mm-hmm. right? It's also yeah. unmiked, and they're really yeah. testing the crowd. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it's, I would say, testing so much as just trying to create that intimacy, trying to bring people in to that inner circle of the stage and, and break down the, the walls between band and audience. And the Fish has always been very good at that to, to greater and lesser success, right? And I think in this case, not at all thinking, hey, is this going to translate to the audience recording that we've got a couple guys right. out there? With my group? You know, I don't think they were thinking that way so much as just, hey, let's let's take advantage of the music hall's uh, acoustics. And we're, we're not, like you said, at the very start of this conversation, they're not going to be in these beautiful theaters for long. I think they knew that. I think they knew, hey, we're going to be moving on and up to the arenas and we're not going to have a chance to do this stuff anymore. So let's let's take advantage of it. Right. Yeah, I agree. This is and this could be the way I saw it. Maybe it's just my adversarial New Yorker <laughs> nature that it's kind of a growing pain. For yeah. the band. It's like the stuff they still want to do and cultivate that uh, beautiful relationship they have with the crowd. But eventually they know they can't have it both ways. It's that's they're, true. And that's they're not going to be able to, to sing Sweet Adeline, which is after Dog Face Boy, unmiked from the stage and everyone be able to hear them and keep their calm and be attentive. It's just when you have that right. many people, it just can't happen. And that's I think the story of Fish is one of shrinking intimacy. I think as they get bigger, you start to lose some of the things that made them special to me. And maybe that's why I'm a jaded vet. Maybe that's why it's hard for me to to still want to take part. You know, I don't like when I go to shows, the last one I went to and dance the way that I've been dancing to fish for 30 years, I get funny looks, even from this, this current crowd that, you know, they've got to know, like, it's just, again, I think it's, you, you'll lose a little bit of it in the bigness of everything. And that's, yeah. that's the nature of it. That's okay. But yeah, you know, and I think this show, we haven't even gotten to to the hood and, and the hairy hood. It, it's, I think it's uh, another marvel of what I'll just say, like acoustic sensitivity. That's the hoods after the acoustic stuff, right? Oh, yeah, I guess there's so, a Well, there's, yeah, there's the acoustic stuff. They sing sweet Adeline on mics yeah. uh, at the center of the stage. And then there's Julius, right? Which oh, I wrote back right. to our regularly scheduled program. That's you know, right. Typical swing rock, you know, again from Hoist, uh, with a big guitar solo, great drum fills. I thought it's, Fishman it's, really stood up here in Julius. Another, and Spark. Another, yeah, the Julius though is another one of those extra mustard. And and here here's how I know, you know, they were feeling it. And I think this is a great marker for Julius, is that when Fishman yells, if he yeah. if you listen to Julius and he starts to shout. And he does it during Julius. I don't know what it is about Julius that he loves to play it, you know, like that drum beat he loves. But when he starts to just like yip and like a, like he's barking like a dog back there, they're feeling it. And Trey's vibing and he's, you know, headbanging his ass off. And I think this this is a swing in Julius.
And they follow it up with Sparkle, which I thought was kind of similar to when they opened this set with Fire and then Poor Heart. So they have, you know, Killer Rock and then Bluegrass, you know, contrast in tone. But then to your point just earlier, the probably highlight of the set, I would weigh this between this or Split Open and Melt, Mm -hmm. is Harry Hood with more great mic leadership, especially during the intro. Yeah, I mean, the... The intro, so I'm a big reggae guy, uh, Jamaican music. It's in my blood. I, I love it so much. So, you know, to have them, you know, milk the intro and and take it out for a little extra spin, uh, Trey's distort, well, his his feedback that he starts to kind of control and distort, um, it's just more of that darkness, more of that heaviness. It's a very kind of brooding, heavy, heavy intro. And then yeah, the contrast with the lightness of the gym, which I mean, it gets almost pin drop quiet. Yeah. Uh, and the crowd is very attentive. And when they start thinking, you get almost just a shimmer of like cymbal and hi-hat work from Fishman. Yeah. And then if you listen really closely, Trey's playing, they're, they're not just harmonics, but false harmonics, which is even softer and quieter than a true harmonic. And he's just plucking these at almost like a harp, you know, You've got this really quiet picking from him, and uh, it's very just ambient. You know, this is well before the ambient stuff from '98, but this is a a beautiful, spacious hood that I I, I point to it often as like a slept-on version of Harry Hood. I agree. It's a fabulous version. And they're not done, though. They're really going to close the set with Susie Greenberg, which is a straightforward rock closer. But they wouldn't it wouldn't be a fish joke if they didn't overdo it. So they did a lot more rock and roll hoochie coo teases. Uh, My ears were drawn more toward Fishman, though, because of how fast he's playing. And I just I wrote down in all caps. How does he do that? Yeah, he's on fire. I think, you know, Trey's doing the the a little bit of the wah pedal funk that becomes the signature sound by 97, but he, he does like an early version of it in this Susie, which is really cool. I was noticing the other night, uh, but yeah, th- this honestly, after the huge hood, which is just that huge catharsis and, and release of the jam there, this felt like a victory lap. This felt like a band just doing a, a one more time around. We're going to like leave you on the highest note, which to me felt so right and so perfect and we we kind of stumbled out into the night it sounds so cliche and maybe trite but i was not going to be the same after this you know both i think psychologically and and in terms of being a musician and a music fan um i i felt like it was just a a perfect encapsulation of of the the teenage 
angst, the, the strife that we all experience as kids growing up and, and finding a way to harness it maybe and channel it into something positive. Uh, and then my friend's dad picked us up and took us to White Castle. Oh my God, what luck! <laughs> Which that's like another another crystalline memory is we go. I mean, we can't even talk, and he takes us to White Castle, no questions asked. I have a sack of sliders in my lap, and I just start feeding them out the window, laughing <laughs> like that. Just a core memory, of just like pushing sliders out the window as if I was eating them, you know. Uh, and didn't didn't fall asleep for a while at, that night. <laughs> but you're not done yet, though. We forgot about there's the encore, which they came back with "Amazing Grace," which is more unmiked singing. And I guess that's fish. You know, a joke yeah. isn't a joke until it's an overdone joke. Uh, but again, that's all icing, just like the Susie yeah. Greenberg was. Yeah, I, and I honestly don't remember the the Amazing Grace. So we may have walked out just having had our fill. It just you know. So to speak, it's like, you know, you saw everything you could and everything you needed to. Yeah, you know, just a fantastic show. And I would go on to, you know, what what happens, I think, for a lot of us when we fall in love with this this band and this this scene and this community, I would just get Donnie Schweiss, like the newsletter from back in the day, the print newsletter, come to my parents' house. I would just pour over it. And I would say, when are they coming back somewhere close? And, you know, you would see up, oh, they're going to be in Dayton this fall. So I went to the hair arena show in the fall. Uh, they're going to be, you know, in Dayton again, the next fall. So it's like you had to in Deer Creek in the, in the, the following summer, 95. And you would just have to, you'd have to find where they were. You'd have to get the tickets, you know, from Ticketmaster at the, at the grocery store. And then you'd have to buy a physical map to know how to get to the venue in some other state, the arduous tasks that we had to go through to see our favorite band, but you would kind of count the days till they came back. It became that special. Well, Kev hollow. Thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. About so much, so much, not just the music, but so much more than the music, you know, like accomplishing what I would consider one of the goals of this podcast of really bringing a listener back to a time and place within the fish lens that no longer exists. And if you weren't there, there's no way to recapture it. So I'm glad that we were able to do that today. And you were able to give so many descriptive and relatable details to take us back to June 21st, 94 at the Cincinnati music hall. Brian, thank you so much, man. It was so fun to, to relive that night uh, with you and, and with your listeners. And yeah, it's uh, one of my absolute favorite shows that I was uh, privileged enough to attend. And that's it for today's conversation with Kev Hollow about June 21st, 1994 at the Cincinnati Music Hall. Kev came really prepared, so there weren't a lot of facts and figures to correct. Just the same, I want to make sure we got everything right with today's Attendance Bias Fact Check. Attendance Bias Fact Check. The guest who brought up today's show in a previous episode was author and poet Elizabeth Beck, who came on Attendance Bias to tell about New Year's Eve 2019. Elizabeth is from the Cincinnati and Kentucky area and emphasized how out of control and raucous the audience was at this Cincinnati show in 1994. Kev's first show with the big return of Slave to the Traffic Light was at the Cincinnati Zoo on August 6, 1993. Conversely, the most recent show that Kev has seen was in Charleston, South Carolina and was played on June 1, 2021. 
According to foodandwine.com, the history of Cincinnati or Skyline Chili is that in 1920, brothers Tom and John Kirajev, I apologize for mispronunciations, immigrated from Harupisa, Macedonia, which is now a part of northern Greece, to Cincinnati, where their older brother, Argy, had established himself as a grocer two years prior. The downtown area in which the brothers settled had become an enclave for Macedonian men who had immigrated during the pre-World War I unrest. When the younger brothers set up shop as the Empress Chili Parlor in a corner of the Empress Burlesque Theater building in 1922, they had a built-in audience hungry for the flavors of home. American diners were already familiar with chili-topped Coney Island hot dogs, but the Kirajif brothers put their own spin on it, adapting a Mediterranean stew spiced with cloves, nutmeg, and cinnamon while adding chili powder along with other spices they had grown up with. The show at Star Lake where Kev met a guy who literally threw his pants away, and with them, his car keys, was on August 11, 1998. It was officially released on Live Fish in 2012. The smaller venue show in Philadelphia that Fish played was at the Met Theater. I referred to it as the Metro because I couldn't quite remember its name, but I was just off by one syllable, so not too bad. The Cincinnati Music Hall was completed and opened in 1878, and that's it for today's episode. I'd like to thank Kev Hollow for joining me today, Fish.net for its help with the fact check, the Mockingbird Foundation for everything they do to help music education, and Fish.in for the recording used in today's episode. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by visiting www.buymeacoffee.com slash Attendance Bias and donating anything you can. You can also reach out to Attendance Bias on social media. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time on Attendance Bias. Bias.